We're going to continue our sermon series in the Gospel of John. So if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Someone would love to bring you a Bible so that we can look at the end of John chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verse 20 to verse 26. I don't think it's going to really shock any of you when I say that There's a sense in which we are living right now in a very disunified age, right? It's not just the last few years, although that sort of just kind of illuminated, I think, some cracks that we had in our world, in our community, in the church. But over the past few years, I've seen friendships lost, in large part, even over trivial matters. I've seen marriages that were once maybe unified, Marriages become more and more fractured. I think soon, soon we're going to be reminded again that we live in a disunified age when you drive through your neighborhood or your cul-de-sac and different people are going to put up different political signs, which is just a reminder that we live in a politically disunified world. Everywhere you look, we have reminders that we're disunified. And yet why I think this is so difficult is not just that we live in a disunified sort of fractured world, that we've kind of come to expect that. Why I think this is so traumatic for us, why it's so difficult, is because all of us, at least to some extent, have tasted what unity feels like. To, to, to be like at one with someone, right? To be on that, that team and you're just gelling together, you're unified in a common purpose, and you just, it just is wonderful and fun to play on that team, isn't it? Or you have those seasons in your marriage or those seasons when you're parenting where it just feels like you're gelling together, you're unified. Or you're on that mission team, that short-term missions trip, and you just feel like you're unified as a team because of this common purpose. We've experienced, at least in part, what it's like to be unified relationally. And so when we experience disunity, it's, it's, it's difficult, it's It's alarming. We hate it. And we continually long for greater and greater unity in our lives. We long to be restored to that parent we have had hard conversations with. We we, we long to be in a small group where there is unity. We, We long to be in a small group project at school. Remember these small group projects? Like your teacher would be like, okay, I'm gonna take these random five people, put them together. And you guys are going to do this, this teamwork, this project, and you instantly show up at the first meeting, you look around, and you're like, I'm going to have to do everything. And you're instantly like, this is going to be horrible, and you're fractured. Whoa. Have you ever been on one of those teams, and you look around, and everyone does their part? You're like, this is amazing. We long for this. The, the psalmist wrote long ago, how good and pleasing it is when God's people live in unity. Isn't that true? It's good. It's pleasing. When we live in unity. And I, I think it's not just Christians or the church that talk about this. John Legend, John Lennon, not legend, different artist. John Lennon, he wrote a song all about this, right? He, he imagined a world in which all the things that divide us would one day be evaporated and we would, he ends the song, live, the world would live as one. Now, I don't recommend his theology, not in the least, but he is onto something, right? 
He's onto something in the sense that he is longing for the world to live as one. He's longing for unity. I think in some ways we've either given up on that or we've gotten too wrapped up in that. We're slowly marching through the Gospel of John. We're going to finish the week after Easter, but we'll kind of arrive on Easter in Christ's death in chapter 20. But John chapter 17 is Jesus' prayer. It's his high priestly prayer. And I said last week that we can divide it up really nicely in three sort of movements. So in verse 1 to 5 in John chapter 17, Jesus prays for himself. Then in verse 6 to 19, Jesus prays for the disciples, the 11. Judas is now gone, so now there's 11. And now, in verses 20 to verse 26, Jesus prays for us. On the eve of Christ's death, he prayed for you. Isn't that shocking? He prayed for the church. The question is, what did he pray for? As as Christ was looking at the cross and through the cross, as the gospel would go forth and be birthed out of his death and resurrection, what's he going to pray? How's he going to pray for the church? He prays, in some sense, a little bit similar to, to John Lennon. He doesn't pray that the world would be one. He prays that the church would be one. This is the big idea which is going to be behind you. That The big idea is this. Unity isn't merely a prayer. Unity is a promise. And it's meant to be experienced. We're going to sort of unpack that big idea in different ways as we look at these uh, few verses in John chapter 17. Let me read, starting in verse 20. This is Jesus praying. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one just as, as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me, uh, loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know you that that you sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. So go back to up to verse 20. In verse 20 we read, I do not ask for these only, the 11, but also for those who will believe through their word. Isn't this astonishing? This is how Jesus builds his church. He spoke and taught and discipled these guys and that when he dies and rises from the grave and the spirit comes in Acts 2, he then sends them to teach and to preach and disciple more. And so they taught and, and men and women come to Christ and, and they begin to teach in and, and households and in various regions and it just keeps going and moving one person to the next until it arrives at this very moment right now. Isn't that just extraordinary? That, that's, that's how this works. 
I mean, I've seen this firsthand. I remember uh, there is this there is this guy named Jake, and my wife's father led him to Christ. He then got sent down to Oregon State to be a student. He then shared the gospel with Blake, who became a Christian. Blake then shared the gospel with Logan. He became a Christian. And then it just went on. It just goes on and on and on. It's amazing. But Paul writes that this really is how we build up the church in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. He writes this, Then you, my children, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, now entrust it to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The point isn't to find the most brilliant, charismatic, the, the greatest skilled preacher or teacher. The emphasis is on just finding faithful men and women who will faithfully teach God's faithful word. It's that simple. It's that wonderful. And so Jesus prays for those who he's taught that when he leaves, they are going to now teach others who will then teach others who will then teach others. Uh, that my wife and I were on staff at the Navigators for a while, and there's this old saying that uh, the, um, the guy who started it, Dawson Trotman, he would often ask a man or woman, he'd say, who's your man? Who's your woman? And what he meant is, who are you investing in? Who are you pursuing? Who are you initiating with to build them up in Christ so that you can send them out and they can do it again? It's a good question. All those men and women who came to the the apostles, they built up in God's word. And then they did the same with others. So Jesus prays. He prays for those who would come after the disciples. He's praying for the church now. He's praying for us, those who will receive the apostolic teaching. And we see what he prays about. It's really easy. I tried to emphasize it when I read it. But look at it. Starting in verse 21, you see this sort of form and shape of Jesus' prayer for the church, for us. Verse 21, Jesus prays that they may be one. Verse 22, that they may be one. Verse 23, that they may become perfectly one. Thrice, if that's a word. If not, I'm going for it. Three times Jesus prays for the church that they would be one. And if you looked actually uh, in verse 20 to verse 23, if you look at those four verses and you count the preposition in, which is another kind of word that that, um, Jesus is using to describe unity and oneness, nine times in four verses, Jesus is emphasizing unity, oneness, the church being collectively one in Jesus Christ. And, And I think when you... Read Jesus' prayer for oneness in the church, for unity within the church, and you look around and you go, I don't, I don't know if, if God answered Jesus' prayer. I mean, if you look in the broader sort of ecumenical movement, they're still praying about this, hoping that one day God would answer this prayer. I actually think God has and is, in large part, answering this prayer. And the way I get there is actually just in the text. So Jesus is praying for oneness. But each time Jesus prays for oneness, look at what he roots this oneness that we're to experience in. So let's just go back. Verse 21. That they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Verse 22. That they may be one, even as we are one. So Jesus prays for 
our oneness, our unity. But did you see he's sourcing that oneness in God himself? He's sourcing our fellowship together, our unity as brothers and sisters. And he's saying that oneness is connected to God himself. Our unity is sourced in something bigger than us. Because all unity is, right? Unity always has something external that we're draw, drawn to, right? So you're on a team. What, what brings you unity? Well, it's that common purpose. Like you have a role in this team. And so you're supposed to kind of live out that role, drive in your little athletic lane. And when you do that, and you all do that, theoretically, you work together, coalesce, and you're unified, but it's something external that is drawing you out. You have a mission, so you're a part of Boeing or Microsoft. They have a mission statement. This is who we are. And so you have all these different skills, all these different personalities, all these different people, but what? are they? They're all bound together because they're unified by something outside themselves, the mission, whatever that is. And so as, as Jesus begins to talk about our unity as a church, he says our unity is the thing that kind of draws us out of ourselves, the external force that breeds objective unity in the church is God himself. So God is three persons in one God. Three distinct persons in one God. Three distinct persons in perfect, everlasting, eternal harmony. Perfect unity. So when you think about our oneness as a church, our unity as a church, you've got to always connect it to the doctrine of God. And our oneness as a church actually, in that sense, is guaranteed by our union with God himself. Now, I think in some sense, this should make us uncomfortable. Because what I'm saying is, right now, if you are a Christian, you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, because Christ is perfectly unified with God, that means you are perfectly unified with God as well. And if you're perfectly unified with God, it means you're perfectly unified to all brothers and sisters in Christ at all times, at all places, right now. So you, in one sense, cannot be more unified than you are right now if you're in Christ. You are perfectly, everlastingly unified with brothers and sisters. And that should make us all go, wait a second. If that's true, how in the world is there so much disunity in the church? Let me give you a biblical kind of uh, illustration, and then let me give you a personal Illustration. So the Bible talks about uh, categories like this all the time. So, so we read in First Peter that we are holy. So if you are a Christian, you are objectively holy. First Peter two nine. Then if you go back to First Peter one, I think it's fifteen. It says, "Be holy." And you might think, "Well, which is it? Are we holy, or are we called to be holy?" We can do this for, with a lot of things, right? It says, "You have been saved. Now work out your salvation with fear and trembling." And so the idea of the New Testament is, this is who you are. This is your identity. You are holy. You have been saved. Now, in light of that objective identity, live it out. Live as though you are holy. Live as though you've already been saved. Or you have been unified. Now, live like it. Or I could think of it this way. So I'm coaching past tense now. We, we had uh, our last game as I was coaching first and second grade boys basketball. Um, it, it's about as close to purgatory as I dare think I'll ever get. And so I was coaching it and all year long, we were not unified. We couldn't play together. And how do I know that? 
our record suggested it. We went 0 and 7 or something. And everyone was just out on their own. Now, here's the interesting thing is, we were unified as a team because everyone wore, wore the same jersey. We were on the same team. They were perfectly unified. I was their coach most days, right? They wore the team jersey. They were on the same court. They were supposed to get a basket in that hoop and not that hoop. And yet, all throughout the season, we just, though they were all on the same team, they didn't play like they were all on the same team until the last game of the season. And finally, they won. And I wasn't even there to be a coach, so I'm guessing it was all on me. <laughs> but, but we live in this tension all the time, right? This, this tension that the Bible talks about, which is, this is who you are objectively now. In light of that, live like it. And that very much is how Jesus is praying for our unity. You are unified with God. And since you're unified with God, you're unified with all those who are also unified with God. Now, in light of that, in light of that objective truth, as we live in this world, we ought to not have some sort of spiritual amnesia as it relates to who we are. We ought to live like we're unified. We experience disunity, but we should go back to our reminder that we are unified to God and each other and then work towards greater and greater unity. And you might go, well, that's great. So we're just unified because it's really cool to be unified. No, no, not, not in the least. But the stakes are far greater than that. L- look back in verse 21. You see, our unity as a church sourced in God has a purpose. Verse 21. Jesus prays that, that we may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Why? What's the purpose? What's the point? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Why? What's the point? What's the purpose? So that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Our oneness, experientially or subjectively lived out, right here in this moment, in this church, isn't merely for our good. There's a purpose. There's a point. It is meant to display something. So our oneness as a church is meant to communicate something. That God's alive. That God's working. That God's love is in us. Which means the point of our unity as a church is not uniformity. What I mean by uniformity is it means that we're not supposed to flatten every thing that could divide us and we're supposed to make everyone believe the exact same thing about a TV show or about alcohol or where's the line on modesty or our eschatology, uh, our precise eschatology or all these sorts of things that maybe divide us. The point isn't for me to just make you just like me. That's not the point. It would be great, but how boring would that be, right? Or take it into marriage. We often think the most annoying thing about marriage is that God put me with someone who's not like me. And if they were just more like me, how glorious would that be? That's not the point of marriage, is it? The glory of marriage is that God gave you someone who's not like you. Or in parenting, that God gave you someone who's not like you. And then you have to think through, what does it look like to live at peace, to live in harmony, to live as one 
in light or despite your differences. That's what makes marriage so beautiful. And, you know, Paul talks about it, that marriage itself is a picture of the gospel. Well, so is our church. Such that as we live out our lives and we go, okay, this is really important to me. I really believe this with all my heart. But this person has a contrary opinion about something that they think is really important. So, how we interact with one another, how we love one another, how we treat each other, isn't just so that we cannot have it be awkward on Sunday. It is a plausibility argument for the existence of God. Our unity is an apologetic for God. It is a display that God really is alive. I mean, have you ever experienced that? You're like hanging out at a Bible study or um, you, you you go out with a bunch of people and the waitress like walks up to you and they're like, what are you doing? And there's like, all this diversity, all, 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 all age and, and ethnic and education, and they're like, this doesn't make it, why are you guys all hanging out? I love those moments, right? I love those moments. You, you, you travel overseas and you hang out with, with Christians in another country and you're like hanging out and you, don't, you barely speak the same language. You're like, hola, and you're like, I'm done, and that's it. <laughs> and yet there's just something that just bonds you together and you're just laughing and you don't even know why you're laughing. You're just like, you just look like you got the joy, joy, joy in your heart or whatever. We experience this sort of thing. And I think, and I just want to encourage you all, I think we experienced this the past five years since I've been here. Even in the midst of the world and, and temptations and evil throwing all of these things for us to be disunified. Uh, I did a... a I, I'm not going to share them, but I know for a fact that there are many, many things that I did wrong over the last three years and poor, uh, poor leadership and uh, things that if I had a time machine, I'd go back and do differently. I'm not going to share them because you might just clap. <laughs> and yet here's the thing. Here's the wonderful thing that I just want to encourage you on. Even when you guys disagreed with me, so often you just said, let's go out to coffee or you called me. And you said, I remember the, the greatest thing I ever, I, I, someone ever said to me was, I still think you're wrong, but, but you're my pastor, and I'm just excited to see what God does moving forward. That's the point. Like, the point isn't to convince you all to become just like me. Lord, help us. The point is that as we live with different personalities, different education, different backgrounds. We can think through what does it look like to live at one or be more and more one with each other. And let me just give us just a couple by way of application. Paul talks about this. Paul talks about how we can do this practically in uh, the book of Ephesians in chapter four, verse one to six. So he, he basically rips off Jesus's prayer here and he sources our unity, the whole, the whole thing is about uh, to continue to, to maintain the bond of peace. So, so the point is, how do we be at peace in reference to the church in Ephesus? And he says that he sources it in God, you know, one, one God, one Father, one Lord, one baptism, right? One hope, like right? he just talks about this oneness, right? We're all together because we've all got the same connection and union with Christ. But then he says this. He says in Ephesians, go there, Ephesians chapter 4. 
1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So he's writing saying, you need to fight for unity. You need to maintain experientially the type of unity you've already been granted through Jesus Christ. And you might go, that's really hard. And he gives us four practical ways in which we can work towards greater unity. Do you see them? Humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. There is no unity without humility. It's kind of good, huh? It kind of rhymes. There is no unity without patience, without gentleness, without bearing with one another. In some ways, there's no unity without commitment, is there? Because how do you live these out? You can only live them out as you commit yourself to one another. In some sense, the call to be unified is a call of membership. To say, I'm going to root myself in this church and I'm going to practice putting on gentleness and patience and bearing with one another. Because if you're dating, let's just say you're just dating someone, it's really easy to be like, yeah, I'm out, right? I'm not going to bear with this. I'm out. Then you get married and you're like, okay, I got to bear with this now. The commitment apparatus of marriage is the perfect kind of context for us to practice patience, gentleness, forbearance, humility. Same is true with the church, being a member of a church. This is how we work out our unity, how we work out our humility, how we work out our gentleness. We just practice these sorts of things with one another. And I think in many ways, this is why, when we think about doing this practically, this is why, I'm going to step on some people's toes for a second, this is why virtual church never works. If the purpose of our unity is to display who God is, then I'm certain that you can find a better preacher than me anywhere online. I'm certain that you can get better worship than you get in our church. But you can't express the unity found in this room when you're alone in your living room watching a sermon, as good as they are, and they're glorious. The only way the world is going to look on us and see something distinct and glorious is as they see us gathering together, physically present. God's answering this prayer objectively. He is bringing people, men, women, from all across, and he's unifying them to himself. And then, having done so, he's unifying us to one another. God's answering this prayer. But notice, if you're sort of discouraged, if you're like, "Ah, I don't know if he really is, look at verse 25. Not only do we have this prayer, we actually have something really cool. We have a promise. Verse 25, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I may know to them your name, and, here's the promise, I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. 
is a promise. This is a promise that says that God will use the church and the unity that the church has with God to display God's love throughout the world. This is a promise that God is going to build his church through the church. This is a promise that disunity can never ultimately harm the advancement of Christ's agenda in this world. And I think some of us, depending on our personality and our background, we need to hear one of two things. Either it's, uh, I just think the church is so fractured, so um, disunified that there's no hope. And you need to hear that here's a promise that God will unify the church. God is unifying the church and he is displaying and making his name great among the world. So be encouraged. If you're discouraged, you need to look and memorize and remind yourself of this promise. But then others of you are like, ah, who cares about unity? Eh, you know, that's just, that's just what some people talk about. Like, we're great. I think you need to hear this and say, this is worth fighting for. Because this is one of the ways God makes his name great in the world. This is one of the ways God is displaying his love in the world. Like, how do we explain God's love to our neighbors, to our community? Well, we do it in many ways. We can just say, we can just kind of preach John 3.16. That's one way. We can teach John 3.16. But another way we can do that is by living out John 3.16, by, by living out the love that we've experienced in Christ with one another. So unity is not just something like liberals are into, you know, singing kumbaya around a hammock or something. No. Unity is our gig. They stole it. This is ours because it's Christ's. So here's a promise from Christ that he will make his name great through local churches as we unify ourselves together because of our unity in Christ. But I just want to, I want to leave with one more thing because Christ doesn't leave this prayer with discouragement. Um, As many of you know, I read through my sermon on Friday afternoon and I I read through it with some, some people and their response was, uh, you're just talking about unity negatively, not positively. And I'm like, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. Like the, the goal that Jesus leaves with, the punch that he is, isn't, oh, you're just so disunified. Just focus on your disunity and how to fix it. He does it the opposite. He says, you are unified. Now live like it. He doesn't say, stare at your sin, your disunity, and then figure out how to make it better. He, he starts with a glorious goodness. And so look at how really Jesus ends this prayer. Verse 24. He reminds us that in the end, whatever progress we make in our churches and in our church at the chapel church towards greater unity is all going to be worth it in the end. Look at verse 24. Father, this is Jesus praying. I desire that you also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus is praying in light of our unity that God would persevere his church such that the church would be with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth forever 
and to experience his glory. He's saying they have objective unity. He's praying for ultimate everlasting unity with God and one another. Jesus is saying, I know they're going to experience a lot of disunity in this world. And so I'm praying ultimately that you'd persevere the church so that one day in death, they might be with me and be perfectly unified. Unified like Adam and Eve were in the garden walking with God and unified with one another. I love how, as Jesus is talking about unity, he gently and patiently tilts our eyes off of the horizon of our experiences and tilts our head up to heaven and says that whatever painful, hard, humiliating, patient, forbearing that you experience in this world towards greater unity in this church, in the end, is going to all be worth it. Whatever taste of unity is just an appetizer of the ultimate unity that we will experience when we not only see Christ in the preaching of the word or see Christ as we take communion, but we see Christ face to face. Disunity is always a manifestation of sin. It always is. So work for unity. But know this, that the longing for unity that you have in your heart, the longing that I have for unity in my heart, to be restored to this person, to be unified with that person or this community, that longing, it may never be fulfilled. All of our longing for unity ultimately will not be fulfilled until that longing is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, in our death, or at his return. And the joy of that unity is going to be like no other joy. It will be like seeing my son excited that they finally won. Lenin, he sang his last song, the last stanza of the last song, this way. You may say that I'm a dreamer, and maybe you think that I'm sort of a dreamer. This sounds like Pollyanna. Well, thankfully, these are Jesus' words. He says, the church will live at one. Lenin's going to be wrong on how this is going to happen, but he's not wrong. The church will live at one. And we, we get to live out a little bit of that story for our good, for our happiness, and for the good of our community. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we acknowledge fundamentally that it's quite easy to, to always point the finger at others when it comes to our disunity, but ultimately we know our hands are not clean. Forgive us for ways in which we have added to greater disunity in our church, but at the same time, in a far greater way, give us the hope that you are fulfilling your promise or fulfilling the prayer of Jesus by unifying men and women to yourself and having done so, unifying us to one another. Lord, we pray for our witness in Puyallup. 
we, we pray that as people walk into this, into this room, as they experience our community, as we're sent out and scattered throughout this region, we pray that they would taste a little bit of the union of heaven in our interactions with them. We pray, Lord, that you would use us and our church in order to create a greater and greater plausibility structure for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.